Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It was some time in the 1850s when Joshua Dewis, a young aspiring shipbuilder, made his way from the small coastal village of Economy on Nova Scotia down to the shores of West Advocate. Searching for a small tract of land to begin a shipbuilding business, he came across the sheltered, pine-covered cove of Spencer's Island and knew immediately he had found the right place. Having succeeded in convincing a few relatives as well as two local merchants to join him in his venture, he purchased a thousand acres close to the shoreline and promptly got to work. Over the next year, trees were felled and land cleared away, and before long, a boatyard had sprung up. Pulling down the surrounding birch, beech, and the maple, Jewess's team worked day and night, chopping, hammering and planing, as piece by piece the hull of a vessel began to take shape. By the fall of 1860, the hull was complete. Turning then to the local spruce and pine, they continued crafting away with chisel and lathe, making masts and cabins, until finally the ship was finished. By spring the following year, the vessel a brigantine formed of two masts and measuring a hundred foot long by 25 feet wide, was ready to launch. The company's very first ship. And its name was Amazon. The purpose of vessels like Amazon was to generate money for their owners as cargo ships, transporting goods from one place to another. Generally, the further the trip and the more precious the cargo, the more money could be made. Amazon's maiden trip was to be a relatively simple one, carrying a load of plaster down the coast to New York. On May 18, 1861, the ship took to the seas for the first time, captained by Robert McClellan, 
a young but well-regarded captain who had just recently married. After making a short hop to Windsor on an opposite coast of Nova Scotia, Amazon was successfully loaded before returning to the seas and continuing on its way toward the United States. However, after barely a hundred miles, Captain McClellan became suddenly unwell. Suffering from a suspected bout of pneumonia, the captain was forced to order the ship back to Spencer's Island, where he promptly disembarked. A few days later, he died. The maiden voyage was eventually completed a few weeks after, but on returning, Amazon inexplicably collided with another vessel, which was instantly sunk as a result. For one of the most superstitious industries of the time, the omens could not have been much worse. For the next six years, however, Amazon made a number of successful trips, delivering cargo to as far away as the West Indies and even France. In 1867, the vessel's owners grew concerned about the capabilities of its then-captain, William Thompson, and made the decision to have him replaced. On hearing of their plan, Thompson stole the ship and deliberately ran it aground in Nova Scotia's Cow Bay, destroying it for any immediate use. And so there, the ship was abandoned and left for dead by its owners. As Joshua Dewis's son would later note, it was as if the craft seemed possessed of the devil to begin with. The following year, having heard about the abandoned vessel, a small consortium of American shipowners, realising it still had potential, decided to take it on. In order to do so, they were required to have its registration changed from Canada to the United States, which also necessitated a change of name. And so, on December 31st, 1868, the ship was formally registered again and duly renamed, to be known from then on as Mary Celeste. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. By October 1872, Mary Celeste was owned by four individuals, with the largest stake belonging to James Winchester, second to which was that belonging to its new captain, Benjamin Spooner Briggs. Briggs was fairly young for the role at 37, but was a highly respected and skilled sailor, said by some to be of the highest character for seamanship and correctness. Briggs was an archetypal sea captain of the time, engineered from an early age for a life on the waves. Benjamin was born in Wareham, Massachusetts, in 1835, to Sophia Cobb and her husband, Captain Nathan Briggs. Together they had seven children in total, including five sons, only one of which didn't enter into the life of a mariner. Life for the Briggs family could be difficult at times, especially for Sophia, who would regularly be left alone with the children as her husband went off to sea, unsure when or if he would ever return. When Benjamin was four, a series of failed investments by his father left the family homeless, 
forcing them to move in temporarily with Benjamin's grandfather. It was in these formative years that the young boy grew especially close to his mother, as they bonded in the periodic absences of his father. Nathan Briggs's love for his family, however, was never in doubt, and when he did return, evenings would often be spent in a fantasy world of tales of distant lands and adventures on the high seas. As he talked, Benjamin and the others would sit wide-eyed in awe at this burly, enigmatic man before them. With the family's fortunes restored a few years later, the Briggs moved to Sipican Village, just outside the coastal town of Marion in Massachusetts, and it was here that Benjamin's love for the open water truly began to manifest. Marion was very much a sailing town, with most of the local industry revolving around the sea, and where, from day and night, the local homes and watering holes would ring with tales of exotic places, shipwrecks and daring do. As a young teenager, Benjamin would watch with jealousy as his father occasioned to take his oldest child, Nathan, out on journeys with him. In the meantime, he could only dream, staring out from the shoreline in wonder at what grand worlds and adventures might lie beyond. But soon, Benjamin too was joining his father on short trips, being treated like any other mate on board, as he was taught to work hard and respect all those in the crew, no matter what their rank. But most of all, to respect the often unforgiving oceans upon which they sailed. If Benjamin needed any reminding of just how dangerous the life of a mariner could be in those days, evidence was not in short supply. By 1870, two brothers and his sister Maria, who was married to a sailor, had been lost at sea. Then, in June of that year, the family were left further devastated when Benjamin's father was struck by lightning while standing in a doorway. He was killed instantly. The litany of loss was hardest of all for Benjamin's mother, Sophia, who had little option but to endure it. And yet, despite the many tragedies that had already befallen her, she determined to remain optimistic whenever her two remaining sons of the sea left on another voyage, praying it would only be a matter of time before they came back. By then, Benjamin had married, having met and fallen in love with Sarah Elizabeth Cobb, a skilled musician and seamstress. Having married in 1862, Sarah gave birth to their first child, Arthur, three years later, and in October of 1870, they welcomed their second, Sophia, named after Benjamin's mother, of whom he was so fond. Perhaps it was all those anxious nights spent as a child waiting for his father to return and watching his mother going through the same that convinced Benjamin not to travel alone. Either way, from early on in his career, he often made the effort to take his family with him on his voyages. He and Sarah had even sailed together to the Mediterranean for their honeymoon. And so it was to be with his upcoming journey on Marie Celeste. Having been appointed captain in 1872, 
Briggs wasted no time in having the ship refitted with a larger cabin to accommodate his wife and daughter, Sophia. On this occasion, with their son Arthur, now seven, and attending school, they elected to leave him behind with his grandmother to continue his studies. On October 19th, Benjamin Briggs left home and set sail for New York, arriving soon after at Pier 50 on the East River, where Marie Celeste was now moored. Over the next few days, he studiously supervised the loading of the vessel and took time to reacquaint himself with the seven-man crew he had selected to join him on the journey. This would be one of the longest trips Marie Celeste had made, delivering a cargo of 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol to Genoa, where it would then take on a load of fruit to be delivered back to the United States. Of the men accompanying him, first mate, 28-year-old Albert Richardson, was well-known and respected by the captain, having sailed with him before. Second mate, Andrew Gilling, at only 25, was young, but also considered a safe pair of hands. Steward and cook, Edward Head, who hailed from nearby Greenpoint in Brooklyn, was at 23, one of the youngest members of the team, and had only recently been married. The other four were a small team from Germany who had often sailed together, including two brothers, Volkert and Boz Lawrenson. On Saturday, October 26th, Sarah and Sophia took a ship bound for New York and arrived the following morning. That day, Captain Briggs took a horse and cab through the sprawling Klein-Deutschland of Manhattan Island's Lower East Side across to the North River Pier. And there, he stood watch with a warm smile at the sight of Sarah and Sophia waving to him from the deck of their approaching ship. After helping them unload, he led them to the ship that would become their home for the next few months. A few days later, Sarah took receipt of her much-beloved melodion, with which she hoped to entertain her husband and daughter on their trip, installing it in the captain's quarters. Unfortunately, due to an outbreak of horse disease, the family were confined to the immediate vicinity of Pier 50. On the 31st, however, Benjamin and Sarah were met by his aunt and uncle, and together they were able to afford a cab ride up to Central Park, where they would spend the day joyfully celebrating Sophia's second birthday. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. 
That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. With the day of disembarkation approaching, Benjamin took the opportunity to write a letter to his mother. In it, he expressed his joy at Sarah and Sophia's arrival and how homely they had made the ship feel, but also his regret at having decided not to bring their son Arthur with them after all. He also made note of how Sophia was disappointed that they hadn't yet included a picture of Arthur in the family photo album which they had taken with them for their journey, since it was the young girl's favourite book. Briggs had been hoping to say a final farewell to his brother Oliver, who was due to arrive in New York imminently. But having waited as long as he could, on Tuesday, November 5th, the brigantine Marie Celeste pulled away from Pier 50 and meandered its way down the East River. Moving on past the growing towers of the New York and Brooklyn Bridge, which was under construction at the time, it continued on beyond Governor's Island and out into the Upper Bay. They were not long out of the East River when a thick and nasty storm drew in and was soon beating and banging at the ship. Concerned by its increasing ferocity, Briggs was forced to take emergency action and ordered the crew to find shelter close to Staten Island, where they promptly dropped anchor. Over the next few days, the ship's passengers had no choice but to sit and wait it out. Sarah did her best to keep Sophia occupied as Captain Briggs and the crew went over their various charts again in preparation. At one point, Sarah wrote another letter to Benjamin's mother as Sophia played on the floor with her alphabet bricks. It was hard, she wrote, being so close to the shore, knowing that they probably had letters there from their loved ones waiting to be read that they were unable to receive. She signed off, sending her love to Arthur and the rest of the family before having the letter delivered to shore by one of the crew. By the morning of November 7th, the storm had finally settled and Briggs gave the order to haul up the anchor. A short time later, Mary Celeste and her crew were edging out between the tip of Sandy Hook and the Rockaway Peninsula and onwards toward the deep Atlantic Ocean. Eight days after Marie Celeste left New York, the ship, named De Gracia, captained by David Morehouse and laden with a cargo of petroleum bound for Gibraltar, also set sail from the city. Three weeks later, on December the 4th, the ship was roughly two-thirds of the way into its journey as it continued on in a southeasterly direction, 400 miles east of the Azores. After days of sailing through torrential storms and fast crashing waves, the sea and the air had grown calm again. It was sometime just after midday when the ship's pilot, John Johnson, spotted a vessel about six miles off to their port side. Concerned by the manner of its movement, Johnson alerted the captain, who in turn grabbed his telescope to take a closer look. Though they were still some way off, he could see clearly that the ship was completely adrift, with no sign of the crew 
anywhere. Morehouse ordered Johnson to head toward the aimless vessel and shouted out to his first mate, Oliver DeVoe, who was resting below, to join him on deck. Handing the telescope to DeVoe, the first mate took a look for himself. He noticed first that some of the ship's sails were damaged or missing entirely, and then, having by now drawn close enough to see it, he registered the vessel's name, Marie Celeste. The crew of De Gracia attempted to signal it, but they received no reply. It is hard to comprehend the sheer eeriness of approaching a ghost ship, listing gently on the open water, with no sign of land anywhere. And there were doubtless a few nervous glances shared by the crew of the De Gracia as they approached the seemingly vacant vessel. After getting close enough to board it, Morehouse ordered DeVoe to take two men across to investigate. Minutes later, DeVoe, along with Johnson and second mate John Wright, took to the ship's lifeboat before being lowered into the water. As the men rowed their way across, only the sound of the oars splashing in the water and the creaking of the two ships could be heard as they contemplated what they might find on board. Having made it to Marie Celeste, DeVoe called out a final time to no reply before taking a deep breath and pulling himself onto the deck. He was followed soon after by Wright and together the two of them began their search. DeVoe noted first that two of the foresails had blown away completely, while another was left hanging by its corners. The mainsail had fallen, or been pulled down, onto the deck. Also left on deck was the ship's sounding rod, which was used to test for flooding below, perhaps a clue as to why the vessel had been abandoned. DeVoe picked it up and dropped it down one of the pumps. Bringing it up a moment later, he was surprised to find that, although there was some flood water, at only three and a half feet deep, it wouldn't have been any cause for concern. The pumps, too, were in perfect working order. Second mate Wright, meanwhile, had established that the ship had only been equipped with one lifeboat, which was now missing. So, too, was the leading sail rope perhaps having been used to tie the lifeboat to the main ship at some point. Looking up, DeVoe noticed also that the ship's binnacle, a wooden pillar that housed navigational equipment, had been knocked over and its compass smashed. In silence, the men proceeded together into the main cabin, finding no sign of a chronometer or a sextant, presumably having been taken by the crew or whoever else had been there. The captain's navigation book had also gone. In the kitchen area and pantry, they found no sign of anything having been eaten recently, but in the storeroom, they were amazed to discover at least six months' worth of provisions left untouched, and more than enough drinking water for a crew. On they continued, now into the captain's quarters. Here they found the skylight had been left open, 
which may have accounted for why almost everything in the room was soaking wet. Strangely, all of it had been seemingly left, as if its previous inhabitants had just completely vanished on the spot. There were boxes full of clothing, presumably belonging to the captain and what they assumed to be his family. Various pieces of furniture were all left in place, including a melodeon and a sewing machine. DeVoe also noticed a small impression in the bed, as if a young child had only very recently been lying there. Then he noticed the baby's toys scattered about the room. Strewn over the bed, they also found a series of loose charts and books, as well as the logbook and slate log, a record of the ship's most recent location. It was dated November 25th, from almost two weeks before, stating the ship's position as having been just to the north of the island of St. Maria in the Azores, roughly 400 miles away. Below deck, having found no sign of any other crew, they also discovered the hundreds of barrels full of alcohol that had been left completely untouched. Making their way back onto the deck, Wright and DeVoe stood for a moment in quiet contemplation, neither able to quite shake the feeling that whatever had happened, something very peculiar had taken place. Or so at least, that was the story they gave to the Vice Admiralty Court in Gibraltar two weeks later. Having discovered the ghost ship Marie Celeste, the crew of the De Gracia claimed to have debated what to do next before finally deciding that they would bring it with them to Gibraltar. Though Captain Morehouse had been reluctant, it was first mate DeVoe who convinced him to bring the abandoned ship with them in the hope of securing some salvage compensation. Though the ship was still owned and the cargo would not be handed to them, the crew of the De Gracia would be entitled to claim significant compensation for having rescued it. Such a fee would often be well worth the effort. Over the next few weeks, the two vessels made their way together, only losing sight of each other on the final approach to Gibraltar, when a heavy storm momentarily separated them. In a twist of fate that seems fitting for the moment, this separation saw Mary Celeste arriving into port a day later than De Gracia, on the morning of Friday the 13th. The following day, a telegram was sent to the major shareholder, Thomas Winchester, to inform him of the abandoned vessel's discovery and that it had been taken into custody by the Marshal of the Vice Admiralty. Incredibly, there seems to have been little interest in discovering the whereabouts of Marie Celeste's passengers, Instead, all official interest turned immediately to business concerns. The following week, on December 18th, a case was opened to decide what salvage compensation should be granted to Captain Morehouse and his crew. Over the next few days, Gibraltar's Vice Admiralty Court, presided over by Judge Sir James Cochrane, with Frederick Soliflood acting as the advocate on behalf of the Crown, grilled the crew of the De Gracia about the circumstances under which they found Marie Celeste. Clearly, 
pirates were not to blame, since the ship and all its cargo, not to mention the possessions of its passengers, had been found intact. Which left only the frankly incomprehensible explanation that Captain Briggs, a highly skilled, experienced and trustworthy sea captain, had abandoned his ship when there was absolutely no evident reason to do so. And there was one other thing that bothered Judge Cochrane and Solliflut. How was it exactly that, if as the De Gracia's crew maintained, they were sailing with the wind behind them, that the deserted Marie Celeste was able to approach them coming the other way? After hearing Captain Morehouse and Oliver DeVoe's unlikely testimony, Solliflut became convinced that some form of foul play had taken place and ordered a further inspection of the vessel in question. The investigation was carried out on December 23rd. Later that day, adding to Solliflut's suspicions and much to the disdain of the judge, Oliver DeVoe unexpectedly removed himself from the investigation in order to complete the De Gracia's original mission. And then the results of the latest inspection came in. After making a detailed study of both the outside and inside of the vessel, the investigators found two deep gashes cut out of each side of the ship's bow. It was suggested the marks had been created artificially to make it look like the ship had accidentally run aground, which could then be used as a reason for claiming it had been abandoned. But that wasn't all. The investigators also found what appeared to be blood spatters on one of the sails and a deep cut in one of the rails that ran down the side of the ship, which they presumed to have been made by an axe. And in the captain's quarters, a sword was discovered that appeared to be covered in spots of blood. When Soliflood examines the item, he suspects the blade may have been wiped clean before being placed back into its scabbard. Writing in a letter to the Board of Trade on the 22nd of January, Flood requests that immediate action be taken to discover the fate of the ship's crew and instructs a doctor to test the sail and sword for blood. Meanwhile, as the ghost ship's discovery hits the news, in homes and in ports across the world, speculation mounts as to what could possibly account for the mystery and soon the letters are mounting up on the desk of the US consul in Gibraltar. Messages from the parents, siblings and wives of the missing crew, demanding to know of any word from their loved ones. The following week, the examination into the potential blood spatterings is carried out by a doctor patron. After taking scrapings from both the sword and the sail, as well as some other areas of interest, the doctor concludes, much to Soliflood's surprise, that the material is not blood after all, but rust. In early March, first mate of the De Gracia, Oliver DeVoe, is called back for further interrogation. However, after finding his original story unchanged, and with no other evidence to the contrary, the Vice-Admiralty have no choice but to accept his version of events. 
and thus concluded their case. In the weeks that followed, Frederick Soliflud remained convinced that some form of foul play had occurred, if not by the hands of De Gracia's crew, then by that of some aboard Marie Celeste. When it is discovered that one of the ship's barrels of alcohol had been tampered with, he posits the theory that some of the crew had got into it and in a drunken fury murdered Captain Briggs along with his wife and child and his chief mate before making their escape. This theory, however, has been roundly dismissed by many subsequent investigators since not only were the crew all considered decent, hard-working individuals, their evident respect for their captain and his family has also been well accounted for. In the end, the crew of De Gracia, perhaps as a result of still being held under some considerable suspicion, were awarded the unusually low sum of $8,300, around $150,000 in today's money, for their troubles. In early March, a new captain was instated on Marie Celeste, and on March 10th, the vessel set sail from Gibraltar before soon after completing its original journey to Genoa in Italy. Whatever fate befell Captain Briggs, his wife Sarah and daughter Sophia, and the rest of his crew, Albert Richardson, Andrew Gilling, Edward Head, Volkert and Boz Lawrenson, Arian Martins and Gottlieb Gondeschal, remains to this day unexplained. I'd like to thank Gordon in Glasgow for suggesting this week's episode. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com. 